Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray just briefly. Father, we've already prayed. We ask again, open our hearts, our minds, and strengthen our wills to follow you. Please uh, uh, make uh, the rest of our time together count in eternity, Lord, because of what we've learned of you. Amen. You know, if you think about it, life only works because of trust. When I, I get into the car and uh, I drive, trusting that all the other people on the road will drive safely on the left-hand side. I have a, a bank account, trusting that the bank will look after my money and uh, allow the, the cash dispenser to give me the notes that I ask for, at least if it's there in my account. And I buy an item uh, uh, from a shop, and uh, both the shopkeeper and I trust that the promise of the Governor of the Bank of England printed on the, uh, the note that I hand over, I promise to pay the, pay the bearer on demand the sum of five pounds, actually means something. Otherwise, there's no transaction. I can't get my goods, they can't get their profit. And I, I bite into a sandwich that I buy, trusting that it's been prepared to appropriate standards. Trust is the key to whether society works or not. The whole um, financial system of Britain depends on trust. Without trust, the economy would collapse. We've seen uh, uh, little hints of that with the uh, Enron and Worldcom scandals. Government cannot trust, uh, cannot, cannot function unless the electorate. Uh, trust the politicians. Schools will not open unless parents trust the teachers to look after them. Shops will go bankrupt if the public loses their trust in those people. Lack of trust, breaches of trust, may actually be uh, the single most important factor, you know, which keeps poor countries poor. Integrity of our society actually rests on our ability to trust one another. And you cannot replace trust with legislation. Legislation in, uh, 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 can help if there are occasional breaches of trust. But if there are wholesale breaches of trust, no amount of legislation will help. Imagine me going out to, uh, on the road uh, in an hour or so's time. And everybody, but everybody, has decided to ignore all the rules of the road. You can't legislate against that. The only thing you can do is get off the road. Now, trust is the key that holds society together in a way that laws never can. And right at the heart of that web of trust is marriage. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the uh, uh, commandment, honour your father and mother. It's the, uh, the fifth commandment. And we said that summarises the, the whole of this last section of the Ten Commandments we've been looking at. 
uh, which is a section about the way we treat others. We said then that um, uh, it, the, uh, the commandment, honour your father and mother, is an appropriate summary in one sense because the family is the cornerstone of society. Society simply cannot function unless families are strong. In my lifetime, we've seen what I, I think must be described as a collapse in the institution of the family. 31% of all births are now outside marriage. 150,000 children every year experience the divorce of uh, their parents. 20% of all families are single-parent families. Hundreds of thousands of people um, are affected, whether they are the deserted partners or the grieving children, profoundly affected by this this social revolution. In the last decade or so, we've actually started to realize the massive cost to that change. But as a nation, as a moment, at the moment, I'm afraid we're very, very far from uh, accepting, having the courage to face up to the full implications of what's going on. The consequences of all this actually can be summarized and a major breakdown of trust in society. If human beings grow up, you see, not knowing how to trust one another, then human society cannot function. And the integrity of the marriage is absolutely at the heart of that. The seventh uh, commandment, you shall not commit adultery, points us to that. It fits very naturally with those preceding commandments. The fifth commandment, honour your father and mother, was about honouring people in the status, in the God-given status that they have. We can't choose our parents, they just are there. There are all sorts of other aspects of society we can't choose. And uh, uh, honour your father and mother points us to the fact that we just must respect the structure of the world as we find it. The sixth uh, uh, commandment, remember, you shall not murder. We said that uh, that relates to our fundamental attitude to other human beings as human beings. We must treat them as a thou, as a person, not an it, a thing that is only of interest to us insofar as how much they can give to us. Treating other people as it actually ends up in murder. But the seventh commandment, you see, is not about things given to us as a, as a given that we cannot change. It's about commitments that we enter into. Important, you see, because each new generation must, in fact, voluntarily enter into committed relationships. If again, the structure of human life is to continue. Marriage is the foundation stone of new families. Before we look at it in detail, though, at how the Bible fleshes out that command, I do want to ask for a little while, because it's being asked by so many people, why marriage? Why bother with marriage? Do we really need uh, the state to endorse and record our, our personal decisions about who we live with? An increasing number of people conclude not. And in one sense, I have to agree with them. 
I mean, imagine Adam and Eve setting eyes on each other and falling in love, and then Adam saying, oh, but we can't do this until we found a priest who can solemnize our union. Where's the registry office? How should we publish the bans? I mean, it is ridiculous. And as human society developed, though it developed um, uh, various um, uh, conventions about how marriage should be recognized in society, the Bible gives us very, very little clue about, uh, about what conventions we really need. Most of the conventions that the Bible actually records, we tend to ignore. Have you ever seen um, uh, the in-laws, for instance, march the happy married couple to the door of their bedroom and, uh, and uh, put them in the nuptial bedroom and close the door? Those things, those customs come and go. And in a sense, we don't necessarily need any particular set of customs. But we do need lifelong monogamous commitment. The Bible's very clear about that for a number of reasons that I, I want to suggest to you. First of all, such relationships express who we are as human beings. The desire to live in a, in a lifelong, faithful relationship is actually fundamental to our nature. People still long for Mr. or Miss Wright, as Bridget Jones' diary shows us. We are made for secure relationships. We need a relationship where the barriers are down. There is something beautiful about the, the complementarity of, of an intimate, loving, committed relationship between a man and a woman. It is possible, of course, to be fully human without marriage. It must be, since Jesus was uh, uh, unmarried and he is our model of perfect humanity. But actually, even amongst those who, who choose singleness, there is an acknowledgement that there is a loss in living like that. And for those who don't choose it, for whom it is just circumstances that have thrust it upon them, that loss can be very great. And rightly so. Because we were made in the image of God and God himself is a relational God. The Bible tells us we don't, we don't really know God until we see him as Father, Son and Spirit who eternally exist in a, in a glorious relationship within himself. God is one and yet Yet he must express himself in three persons because it's an essential part of his, of his godness, if you like, that he is relationship, that he enjoys relationship. You get a fascinating anticipation of that in, in Genesis chapter 1 when God says, let us, notice the plural, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, it says, then, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made for lifelong male-female intimacy because we are made in God's image. Now, the second couple of reasons why 
We need marriage, or perhaps slightly more mundane, but equally important. We need marriage. We need a convention that enables partners to, uh, to, to stick together lifelong, to protect the weaker partner. If all male-female relationships, you see, were just unions uh, of equal partners who both accepted that they were free to leave whenever, whenever they liked, then there may not be quite so much damage done. But as for, in my experience, that is virtually never the case. Longer-term relationships nearly always involve one partner who is committed to the relationship, even if there is one who is not. And actually, the uncommitted partner, the one who feels free to walk away at any point, is in the powerful position. The committed partner is in the weak position. In those cases, it's always, therefore, the weak one, the vulnerable one, who is abused. can't tell you how many times I've heard stories of husbands walking away when their, when their um, wife has the first child, or perhaps has one more child. She needs him at that moment more than anything else. And he walks away. See, we need to encourage lifelong committed relationships to protect the weaker partner the one who is committed to it. And another vulnerable uh, personal people in the situation is, of course, children. We need marriage to protect children. That's actually at the heart of the, the ideological fight in this country at the moment. It's common orthodoxy to say there are all sorts of families which are capable of serving children equally well. Sadly, that's, that's not the case. In 1992, for instance, um, uh, Norman Dennis and George Erdos produced uh, this book, Families uh, Without Fathers. It uh, gathered together an enormous amount of evidence that shows in almost every aspect of the lives of, of, uh, of children is damaged by them living in, uh, uh, in non-standard families. It's been brutally attacked ever, uh, ever since because... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the orthodoxy is just to accept families as they are. The sad truth is some families can care for children better than others. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that uh, all children in single-parent families are, uh, are doomed. So neither does it mean that all children with both parents uh, uh, married are uh, automatically going, going to be looked after well. Sadly, the, the general tendency is that children are damaged by broken homes. Recently, Norman Dennis, one of those authors, wrote an article entitled Beautiful Ideas, Brutal Facts where he showed that the ideas of people who think that all types of uh, family relationship are good might sound beautiful. But the sad, obvious facts in our society are brutally different. 
And we do need marriage. I don't care how a marriage is solemnized particularly. But people need to live in solemn covenant commitment with one another. What does the Bible say then in a little bit more detail? We'll look uh, just briefly at a, at a few things about uh, focusing on these ideas of sex and marriage, remembering that uh, we are expanding on do not commit adultery. Well, a very interesting and um, perhaps the most controversial thing that we're going to say this morning is uh, found uh, very clearly in the, in the Old Testament. Sex is tantamount to marriage. And today we've divorced sex from marriage in, in quite a dramatic way. Um, for instance, I suspect 99% at least of all depictions of sexual activity on television are between unmarried people, aren't they? But the Bible says that sexual intercourse is more or less the act of marriage. In Exodus 22, 16, for instance, if an unmarried couple engaged in sexual intercourse, then the presumption was that they should get married. The father of the girl could decide that uh, he was so disreputable he wasn't having him as a son-in-law, but they had no right not to get married. Sex is the, is the currency of marriage. It's, it's designed to keep a couple together, to help them to express their intimacy together, to bind them together. The sustained and systematic message, sadly, of the media and the government at the moment, and in fact the vast majority of our society, we can't blame the, those um, institutions, is that sex is too good to confine in marriage. Well, the Bible says the opposite. Sex is too good to scatter it around as if it, were, it was chaff in the wind. I don't think the, 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 the rise of, of sexual health problems amongst teenagers is, perhaps, is actually the greatest danger to them. I think it's the fact that sex has now become a cheap currency. It's now in danger of losing its, its delightful, pleasurable power to hold couples together. For more and more people, sex is no longer about making love. We've even stopped using that phrase, haven't we? It's a lonely experience. It's an experience where we get some pleasure, but we get it in the company of someone we barely know. And someone who in who knows how short a time we may never see again. Now the Bible is quite clear. clear. Sexual intercourse is, is tantamount to marriage. If sex is almost marriage, that explains very clearly why adultery breaks the marriage bond. There's a list of laws in Deuteronomy 22, for instance, all of which presume that sex by a married person outside of that marriage breaks the marriage bond. And Jesus in, uh, in uh, Matthew 5.32, as Florence read to us, uses, uses um, in his case, a slightly broader term, translated um, marital unfaithfulness, to describe exactly the same thing. 
person is free from the marriage bond, says Jesus, if there is marital unfaithfulness, because the bond is already broken. Maybe that he uses the, the term marital unfaithfulness to stop us being too obsessed by the uh, precise mechanics of what precise sexual activity um, uh, constitutes a breaking of the marriage bond. We know what sexual activity should be confined to the marriage bed. We know when we've broken that. I do want to say it's possible for a, for a couple to recover from adultery. But such a recovery is extremely costly. It requires actually remaking a marriage from the ground up. Now, actually, in an environment where it, it has once been broken, where it has once been betrayed. Jesus is quite clear that the aggrieved party is actually not under an obligation to do that. They may decide that they will. But in that case, there is no obligation. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in the book I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, The Politics of Hope, says this, Adultery is wrong because it's a betrayal of a partner, a commitment, a promise, a trust. If adultery is undiscovered, then one of the partners is living a lie and the other an illusion. If it is discovered, there is no way of avoiding the pain. If the adulterous partner drops the affair and goes back to his or her marriage partner, then one person is abandoned, used, spent, discarded, and between the couple there is now the slow poison of suspicion and mistrust. If the, if the affair continues and the marriage breaks up, a relationship built on a pledge of love has been destroyed. Nor can the new partner ever recover the sense of stability with which partnership ever recover the sense of stability with which the old one began because both partners know that one of them in the past has broken a vow and may do so again and both have purchased their happiness at the cost of someone else's pain adultery has no saving graces he says now let me say to those of us here who are married, do not think you are immune from this. Men especially, do not underestimate your potential for waywardness. But I remember vividly speaking to a married female friend a few years ago, and she was going through a really hard, lonely time in her marriage. She had a cup of coffee with a male colleague and the, couple co the, 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 the colleague showed just a little more than casual bit of interest and sympathy to her. And she said she could feel the emotion welling up in her. And the temptation was there. Do not think you are immune. Be careful. Let me say, say too to married couples here, 
work at your marriage. The Apostle Paul actually advocated regular sex for couples to keep them in their marriage, maintaining their relationship. He instructed men and women to serve one another in the way that that partner needs to be served. Women especially to be cherished, men especially to be respected, both to, to, to honour one another. My experience is that nearly all cases of adultery, amongst Christians at least, who in theory are committed to staying together, occur because both partners actually have neglected to maintain the marriage. Let me say as well, I know that there are many people who are damaged by these truths we are exploring here. I, I know the statistics tell me it, and uh, it, it cannot be escaped amongst us that there are very, very significant proportion of us who have been sexually active before marriage. And that damages us. There is a sense in which that was a form of adultery committed before we found the partner who was to be our lifelong partner. I know there are people who grew up here damaged because their parents' marriage failed. Especially uh, as the title of that book suggests, who grew up without a close father figure. I know there are those who now struggle in the midst of a marriage which is desperately hard work. I know there are those whose marriages themselves have failed. Let me say, this is a new family here. This is a place where people can learn to trust again. This is a place where we can be surrogate fathers and mothers. The people who never had that when they were young or who don't have it at the moment while they are young. This is a place where we in one sense can be a surrogate husband to a mum trying to raise children on her own brother, a sister, family together. This is why it's so desperately important that we, in covenant faithfulness to one another, help one another to learn to trust human beings because an increasing number of people have been betrayed. Betrayed at a very profound level and find themselves unable to trust There is a small sense in which we, as God's people here, can start trying to resist that. But beyond the, uh, the actual 
actions that we uh, may commit, the dangerous actions. Jesus, of course, gets right to the heart of what adultery is all about. Adultery, he says, starts with lust. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our thought life, says Jesus, is absolutely vitally important. I'm sure if you've been speaking in these days of sexual equality, he would have warned against looking lustfully at men as well. It is possible for women to lust uh, in a similar way. But I'm sure he was right too that the predominant problem here is amongst men. Let me say, though, that I don't think Jesus is um, uh, prohibiting the appreciation of female or male beauty. Seems to me, actually, that uh, many um, of the Muslim traditions that insist that women be completely covered, um, most extremely by the, the, the burqa, that actually denigrates women. God made um, uh, men, and I don't think I, I'm being male by saying, and especially women, to be beautiful. I think women appreciate that too. And there is no reason at all that women should not delight in that. And the Miss World competition is a very, very hot issue at the moment, and a local one, uh, you may realise, because Miss England comes from the Marston Road in Oxford here. Now, there may be a sense in which the Miss World uh, competition is an opportunity for lust. But to be honest, in the current Western climate, it's not one of the key places. There is at least some effort to, uh, uh, for those women to be presented as real human beings. We know the difference between appreciating beauty and lust. And our world is full of the latter. There's a great loss, in fact, of real appreciation of beauty. We're bombarded, aren't we, by sexually provocative material. Television's full of it. Most films contain it. Advertising hoardings display it. Seems almost all novels have to describe it in lurid detail. The internet is a new and very, very big source of temptation and degradation. We cannot get away from it. The Apostle Paul was quite clear when uh, talking about um, separating from sexually immoral people in, in, who claim to be Christians. He said, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. In that case, you'd have to leave this world, he says. And isn't that true today? Now, the truth is we need to learn character. More than anything else, we need to learn how to function in a sexually saturated world. It may be possible to put your uh, special blocking software on the uh, uh, on Internet Explorer. It may be possible uh, to avoid ever going to an 18-rated film, but it is not possible to uh, to avoid sexually provocative situations. 
More than rules, we need character. We need to learn disciplines of turning away from temptation. James was quite clear. Temptation can so easily lead into sin. And sin quietly, quietly grows till it kills our soul. Lust is a deep danger. But you see, having got to the heart of the problem, Jesus gets to the heart of the solution as well. Once he uh, was confronted by a crowd who uh, gathered, uh, who, who dragged a woman in front of him who had been caught in the act of adultery. They demanded that she be condemned. They demanded that she be stoned to death. But Jesus said, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. If one person in that crowd was sinless, she was a dead woman. And they all walked away one at a time. Interestingly, John tells us it was the oldest ones first. Those who've lived long enough to realize they're not as pure as they thought they were. Has no one condemned you, Jesus said? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin, he said. Maybe you are burdened by guilt. Let me tell you, there is absolutely no one here who could condemn you. If all your sins were exposed and you were made to stand here with them all recited, there is no one here who could say, I am without sin. Not that perfect Christian that seems to be sitting next to you, not that godly old lady, not that zealous young man, not that preacher, no one. And neither does Jesus condemn us. Go, you lustful man. Go, you unfaithful woman. Go, you betrayer of trust. Go, you who were caught in the act. Go, you who have never been caught, but Jesus saw you and wept over you. Go now and leave your life of sin, he says. I do not condemn you. Come to me for forgiveness and lead a new life. A moment of silence while you just say what you need to, to God. Our loving Heavenly Father, as these things unfolded on that first Easter, We see you being so clear and yet so gentle.
giving us uh, abundant evidence and yet being patient with us. As we uh, thought those things were nonsense and wondered. Wherever we are this morning, Lord, we pray. You would help us to see the glorious things you long for us to see. And give us peace. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.